0: Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Life is good. Ann and I have been friends for a really long time. Yep, we met right out of college in our first jobs as radio producers, and we had a lot of fun living it up in the big city.
1: And then we grew up, got married, and stood up in each other's weddings.
0: And we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers.
1: Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you. And let's be honest, this year, there's no shortage of stuff to cover. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics
0: with people who know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we already have. So welcome to Apparently. (laughs) Life is good. Apparently, Anne, there's a right way and a wrong way to approach having conversations with our tweens, and I'm pretty sure I could use a crash course on the right way to have these conversations, like stat.
0: I do not need a crash course on the wrong way. I would say I have an advanced degree on that.
1: Based on the last year of COVID, there's been four people living in my house, living under one roof, 24-7, and there's been a lot of shut doors. Um, working from home, my husband's working from home, there's remote learning, hybrid, no sports, clubs. It's kind of hard to have a conversation with your kid when there's shut doors in the house. Or, in my case, uh, electronics attached to their body. I think <laughs> I've seen the top of their head more than I've seen their faces and the eyeballs, i I'm kidding a little, but not really. <laughs> Do you feel the same way?
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I don't know exactly how to pivot here because, you know, my husband and I both started new jobs in the past year. So we've been tied to our desks because, you know, like when you start a job, you have to really overperform. So sometimes I don't even see the kids until dinner. And then there's this pressure to make dinnertime conversations really special. So we're like all sitting around the table looking at each other and I'm like, so how's your day? And, <laughs> um, and So, but we're all... Mentally exhausted too. So, as we're trying to create this very valuable conversation, it's impossible to not sound like we're interrogating them.
1: The Spanish Inquisition. Well, I feel like the parent child, the tween dynamic universe is at odds with yourself because I don't know about with your girls, but with my 14 year old and 12 year old, they're like getting to the age where they're fun. And you can have real conversations with them. It's not like talking to a three-year-old, which is, you know, lovely and everything, but you can have more fun with them. But it's around the z- exact same time that they want absolutely nothing to do with me. And they want to be independent and have their privacy. And like I said earlier, the shut doors all the time. So it's like this push and pull of, of what's happening. And so it makes it really difficult.
0: That's why we're thrilled to talk to Michelle Ickard. Michelle's a speaker, educator, and author who helps kids, parents, and teachers navigate the complicated social world of early adolescence.
1: Yeah, Michelle's been featured on the Washington, in the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, CNN, Time, People Magazine. She's a contributor for the Today Show parenting team as well. She has two books on middle schoolers. Her first book was Middle School Makeover, and she has a new release that comes out this month called 14 Talks by Age 14. This woman eats and sleeps for the middle school kid. And I also follow her if you haven't already heard about this page, but she has a Facebook group called Less Stressed Middle School Parents that I really, really enjoy and follow. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me. So Michelle, first of all, I need
0: to tell you, I laughed out loud when you set the scene we're going through, which was when midlife meets middle school. (laughs) Because that is exactly where I'm hoping midlife. So Tracy and I both have kids in high school and middle school. And especially during COVID, the doors are closing in our houses, literally and figuratively. How can we keep knocking on their doors and open up the lines of communication? And is the dinner table the best place? (laughs) It's a great observation. The doors
2: do feel like they're closing. Um, I think it's important to recognize that, uh, with COVID at least, it's happening a little bit more than usual. But oftentimes, I think we get confused with what is happening because of the pandemic and what's just middle school behavior. And so, I think it's really good to recognize that a lot of stuff we're seeing right now would be happening anyway. Your child would be retreating from you, they would have had enough time with you, no matter how much time you're spending together. And so there are lots of little tweaks we can do. You're, you're not going to change normal adolescent developmental behavior. Your ch- child probably isn't going to, uh, after you read this book, just want to cuddle with you all the time and do crafts with <laughs> oh, you, and, you know, <laughs> but you can foster probably a deeper connection with just some modifications to the way that you talk to your tween. And with regard to where's the best place to do it, uh, the dinner table can be a good space for that, but it's... It, it's not the only spot. I find that, you know, if you can meet kids where they are and where they like to be, so that could be watching their favorite TV show or playing video games with them or, um, you know, whatever it is that they like to do, if they're sitting there painting their nails and you sit down and say, well, you paint my nails, that can be a nice opportunity. So it doesn't have to be just the table.
1: This past year, obviously, with COVID has been unprecedented and Taxing for a lot of families and we've all been stuck at home under one roof, as I said earlier. How can we respect everyone's individual time, but also try to keep things interesting and together, even when we're sick of each other, like without forcing it? Right. I think that's the key
2: there is if you're forcing it, it's probably not going to be fun. Sometimes that works out. You know, my husband is much better at that. He's he's funny and he can be a little pushier because he has a sense of humor that they can come around to more quickly. But um, if we try to push, it's probably not a great time for connection. So you want to look for those more organic moments uh, rather than kind of forcing it. That's so hard. <laughs> It's really hard. And I think a big piece of it is how you approach it. So kids this age, as you said, they want more time alone. And frankly, I want more time alone because I am feel like I'm juggling a million things at once. So sometimes I want to shut my door and go in my room. So I think if you recognize that, but if you look for opportunities to talk that are less about, hey, this is forced family fun time and more like, let's brainstorm what we can do. And, and scheduling something, I think, tends to help because kids don't like to feel ambushed. So if you said, let's think of something fun we can do on Friday or Saturday or Tuesday at four o'clock, some random time, what do you want to offer up here? Instead of just saying, listen, we're all going to go to the park and we're going to go on a hike this weekend and it's going to happen at two o'clock and there's that, then you're going to get a better response.
0: So one of my friends does these outdoor, she calls them nature therapy walks. And she just posted, she's like, my her son was like, mom, are we going on another nature therapy walk? <laughs> and in the book, you mentioned like saying when you want to have a conversation, it's like, do you want to have the conversation before dinner or do you want to have it after dinner? And giving them the chance to help schedule the time that you communicate. That's right. Well, their
2: brains are really impulsive. And so if you want to have a talk right when you want to have it, they can feel caught off guard. They can feel like they haven't gotten their thoughts together. They can feel a little bit like it's an unfair advantage for you who's had time to think, I want to talk about this, and this is a good time for me to talk. So just level the playing field a little bit. And I think most of us can remember some a parenting tip from when our kids were really little about when you want to get your kid out the door, there are three or four, you would say, do you want to wear your red shoes or your blue shoes today? So this is just sort of a slightly evolved version of that. Yes.
0: All right. So based on your research, and we're going to get more into the book right now, but just for the people who are pulling out their hair right now, but what do you think kids need most to thrive and survive these crazy times of remote e-learning and hybrid and isolation? Because, you know, you are the middle school guru and middle school is the time when they should be connecting, right? Right. They have a very natural
2: drive at this age to separate from parents and to connect with each other. And so if we try to uh, work against that, then it sends our kids underground, really, to look for ways to connect with each other when they can't do it out in the open. So- giving them opportunities to connect in whatever way we can is really crucial. Right now, I know that's super hard. Um, so of course, kids are turning online more than ever. I mean, they already were really living online in many ways, but more than ever, it's become important. So I think not demonizing that right out the gate, not saying all screen time is bad, not saying that what happens online isn't real life. It's not a real friend. It's not real connection. It very well can be. So I think approaching um, these experiences with some respect and some empathy is really key. And then probably loosening up a little bit on how we tend to define things like friendship and positive interaction, we would say, is like getting to play outside and doing things face to face and making eye contact. But if it can't be done, it can't be done. So I think that's probably the best thing that parents can do right now. And it it
1: probably gives us parents a little bit of a break too, you know, from our own judgment. Sure. In your book, this was in the very beginning of the book, but I like it. I'm I'm an analogy, metaphor kind of person because it helps frame things for me. You use an analogy of playing racquetball and having conversations with your kids, and I found that very helpful to step back and like think about it and how I frame my conversations. Could you talk a little bit about your <laughs> the, the racquetball analogy?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So what I hear working with parents of kids this age is that they're really afraid sometimes to have these conversations. They know they should, whether it's, I know I'm supposed to talk about pornography, but ugh, I just can't bring myself to do it. It's so, they're going to hate it. They're not going to listen. I don't know where to start. I don't want to say something wrong or gross or weird. So you have parents who put this pressure on themselves to have the perfect conversation and then they're afraid to do it. And so they don't. Um my analogy is to imagine that you're playing racquetball and for anyone who like me doesn't really play racquetball it's a terrifying thought that you know, it's loud and squeaky and you could get hit really hard by the ball and I don't have great reflexes. So I'm not very athletic. I think it's a really sort of terrifying prospect, but what makes it work is that you have these four walls. So it's very uh, reassuring to know that the, you don't have to go far. The ball is going to stay within the bounds of the court. Um, what I suggest parents do before they have these conversations is give some thought to what are the sort of four walls you have in your family and your relationships with each other that create a safe space so that if you start into these conversations and it just goes somewhere really unexpected, really fast, and you're ducking and bobbing and weaving, um, you know that you can still have a really good, really safe conversation because you've established these basic parameters. So for me, Those are sleep. (laughs) Sleep is my favorite thing in the world. And that is something that I really guarded like a hawk when my kids were growing up. I was not super strict in other ways, but bedtime was very important to me. And I knew if things were derailing with us, I could just say, let's sleep on this. Let's get a good night's rest and we can talk about this again tomorrow. Um, autonomy, knowing that my kids needed to have some sense of independence, just like we talked about earlier, you can make some choices for yourself about when we talk about this. Um, unconditional love was my third wall that my children knew no matter what, even if they made really terrible mistakes, even if the mistake upset me, I was always going to be couched in love, the response. And then finally, this idea um, my husband and I worked really hard on is this concept of dignity or inherent worth that no matter who you are, no matter how flawed you feel, um, you have worth just by being you and that people outside of our family are the same way. So for people listening, I would recommend you think about what are the four walls that kind of keep our family safe and supportive. And then you might feel
0: a little less stressed going into these harder conversations.
1: I loved it. And that helped me a lot.
0: <laughs> you also talk about, you you warn parents that we need to learn a new language. And I love this because you're like, don't be like the tourist who goes to Italy and Thinks that talking slowly, (laughs) I would like a summer pizza, is the same thing as speaking Italian. And so, you know, what language, and the whole book is about this. So, you know, you can't summarize all of it, but how do we need to be thinking about language differently when we talk to these growing brains? Well, the first and kind of
2: fundamental shift that we need to understand is that. It is really the job of language to tie groups together. That's what language does. And because, as we talked about earlier, your teen has this tween starting at around age 11, this very real biological need to separate from you and to begin to figure out who they are as a person apart from you. Their job is to break ties apart. So the job of language, keeping people together, is really at odds with the job of a kid who needs to start to figure out who they are as an individual. That means that they're going to start doing things like adopting slang. And, you know, it's very, very natural, generational um, groups of kids always Talk like each other in a way that sort of mocks parents and keeps them at arm's length. Uh, you know, when I was this age, if my mom offered me a warm coat on the way out the door, it like gagged me with a spoon. Like I couldn't imagine. (laughs) It was so gross. And we all have had this experience of trying to separate through language. So what I want parents to do is kind of get that and know that that's what's happening with their kid. And so they should begin approaching their child in a way that respects that. Independence, that drive to be separate. And a quick example of that is rather than saying, hey, here's what you need to do in order to stay on track. You've been getting a little behind in your schoolwork. So here's what I want to see you doing, sitting down at this time at this table every night. It's again, it's offering choices and having options. What can I do to support you? You've got some power here. You've got some autonomy and some authority. What can I do to be a really good assistant to you here?
1: So it's, it's learning little shifts like that. Well, that leads to my next question. Michelle, I am not a smooth talker. I am no Rico suave. Like, I just, I am, I require a little bit of finesse sometimes, um, because I'm pretty direct, which sometimes in, in your book, your conversation crashers, I, I said many of the things that you said probably aren't the best way to start a conversation. What types of conversation starters, like, you mentioned your husband uses humor to kind of get it started. Is there some conversation starters or phrases that would smooth into having these bigger conversations? Sure. And and to reassure you, I know these
2: conversation crashers because they are a part of my life too. Um, so they come from experience. And I think most of us fumble our way through many of these. And, and even after you read the book, you're going to fumble a little bit, but it takes practice, just like any learning any new language, right? Um, so that's totally fine. I want every parent to feel reassured that it's doable. Um, it just, you know, we don't have to be Rico Suave. We'll get there. Uh, things that work. So interestingly, one of the, the things that works best is not doesn't even involve you opening your mouth. It's this tip that I offer for your facial expression when talking to your kids. And it's based on this really cool study that came out of one of Harvard's teaching hospitals where they took adults and they hooked them up to an MRI and they showed them pictures of people's faces. And they said, just by looking at this person's face, can you tell me what they're feeling? And adults could do it 100% of the time. They could read a facial expression and say, that person's angry or that person's happy. You know, Basic sort of stuff. And they could tell since they were hooked up to an MRI that they were using the prefrontal cortex to read facial expressions. Then they put teens through. Teens got it wrong half the time. They could not look at someone's face and clearly say what that person was feeling. And it's because they were using the amygdala, the emotional center of the brain. I find this fascinating and I've really incorporated it into all of the work I do with talking to tweens and teens. But when your child sees your face, like me, my 48-year-old face that has a very furrowed brow 90% of the time because yes. I'm juggling, I'm multitasking. I'm. This is also how I show empathy, right. I think. right? <laughs> I think this is me looking concerned when I scrunch my forehead up and I lean in, but my kid will see that scrunched up forehead and think I'm angry every single time. And there may be sun in my face, or I might just have resting, you know, wrinkled (laughs) forehead, which I do. Right. So my best tip for starting any conversation with your kid doesn't have to do anything with what you say. It has to do with what your face looks like. And so if you can have, I jokingly call it having a Botox brow, but if you can pretend you're a celebrity on a late night talk show and you've been so overly Botoxed, you can't wrinkle your forehead. Now, I have the benefit of seeing you and the audience does it, but you're doing what every single parent does when they try this the first time. They look like a deer in the headlights. (laughs) They look wide eyed and shocked. So if you're at home listening... And your eyes are getting really big while you listen. You, you actually want to look just completely disinterested. Like your forehead and your eyes are just dull, very dull. And it looks so weird to us, but I have been giving this tip for years and years. And parents write me all the time and say, what a game changer. My kid
0: tells me stuff now because they don't think I'm mad at them. By the way, I'm going to use this now to persuade my husband to let me get Botox. <laughs>
2: truly, uh, really, I don't know why a pharmaceutical company isn't sponsoring my book, but like, so many women say that to me all the time. or you can just do what I do and get photox, which is just like iron your forehead out with your fingers.
0: <laughs> all right, so I think the meat of this book is the formula you offer to approach the essential talks. Um, you introduce this formula called brief. Can you walk us through, so B-R-I-E-F, and I know that I don't want to give away all the goods in your book, but what are these steps and, and how can they help us? Yes. It does not give
2: away all the, all the goods because brief is the model that you can use for every single conversation. I mean, I've got, it's, kind of four, it's 14 talks, so 14 essential umbrella topics, but there are thousands of conversations that you need to have with your kid and they're embedded under these larger topics. And I don't want parents to feel like they have to reinvent the wheel every single time. Like, oh, how do I start this one? So brief is an acronym and the B stands for begin peacefully. And the reason for that is in, in the work I do in my uh, Facebook group that you mentioned, Tracy, is I help parents start these conversations and they will say to me all the time, I don't know how to begin. And I, I dove in the deep end and I scared them off. And now what do I do? So most of us want to start at the end, <laughs> giving advice, telling them what to do. We think we have about two seconds before they turn around and leave the room or roll their eyes. But beginning peacefully is having kind of a gentle curiosity about the subject itself and not probing your kid. So if you want to talk about vape with your kid, instead of saying like, I hope you're not vaping. You know, you're not allowed to vape. Which of your friends are vaping? I need their parents' (laughs) phone numbers because I'm really scared. (laughs) Beginning peacefully is just kind of like, man, what are kids thinking about vape? It's all over the news. And do they think we're getting it wrong or right? Like, what's the general feeling? So it's gentle. (laughs) Uh, R is relate to your kid. And that's just a quick indication that I am not here to bust you. Um, just having a good time. So it could be like, man, yeah, I can remember when I was younger, all the talks were about smoking cigarettes. And we had Joe Camel, they, we, they advertised for kids back then. So show them that you're chill. I is interview for data. And I say data, because again, I want this to feel not like an interrogation, but just a sort of collecting of information. So, you know, what do you know about it? What have you heard about what it can do to your health? What what are people saying? What you're feeling? Um, e is echo what you hear. And that's, you know, if you've been to a therapist, or you've seen one on TV, you know how to do this, like, oh, it sounds like you're saying this, or it sounds like you're feeling that you really want to check for comprehension here. Because a lot of times, we think we've heard our kids correctly, but they, you know, we've got some language barriers, the whole point of the book. And then F is feedback, and that's where most people start. So feedback needs to, you kind of have to earn their trust to get to this point where you can then give them advice or suggestions. But if you begin that way, that's when your kid is quick to turn you off and walk away.
0: And to following that, is the theory that less is more true in these types of conversations? You know, brief is brief.
2: Brief is brief, and I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I do. I, I did choose those words to 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 mean I'd rather you have a bunch of little quick conversations than feel like you need to have one massive. I checked the box, perfect conversation. That that is less effective, um, and it's going to put way too much pressure on you and your kid.
1: We talked about the dinner table conversations or in the car i think i mentioned i kind of get goods out of my kids when we're driving places but wait 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 you dr- you drive places <laughs> <laughs> Well, I used to, but I am am driving them to school right now, so I do have like a five-minute window to get them to high school or junior high. That's when they offer things up willingly because most of the time we're looking at the road and they're not looking at me and it doesn't look like I'm the Spanish Inquisition with them. In your research and dealing with the middle school demographic, Michelle, have the kids suggested times when – do they like the car as the time to talk to mom and dad? Or, you know, is it at bedtime, like when they're winding down? It's bedtime. I mean hands down the time that I hear that kids most want to talk
2: is when you are fast asleep and exhausted or exhausted at the end of the day. It's so hard, but most kids, first of all, their circadian rhythms are different than ours. so they are up and they are uh, their brains are working at 11 p.m and I'm like struggling past nine to talk <laughs> to stay wide-eyed. Um, I will tell you that because of my sleep, Uh, preference that we talked about earlier, I couldn't fight myself on that one. I was not a parent who could say, yes, I will be alert at midnight and have a really meaningful conversation with you. Lots of parents can do that. And I love that if they can, but don't beat yourself up. If you can't meet your kid where they are at midnight when they want to talk, I mean, maybe sometimes, but you don't have to do it all the time. Um, But I do know that late night tends to be a really preferred time. Mornings, no. <laughs> I would love to have a really robust conversation over breakfast, but I'd be alone. So <laughs> that wouldn't work out well. Um, what you said about the car is true. And and one thing that I think uh, is a nice thing if you can do it is to have kind of a no cell phone rule in the car. I think it's probably a good habit for people before they start to drive anyway. But um, if you can keep your kid from playing on their phone the whole time you're in the car, you're more likely to have a better conversation. So that might be, you know, let's not have phones on the way to school or something like that. And then there are just sort of evening hours that I think work really well for watching TV together. Or I had a parent my parenting group the other day ask in a very alarmed way, we, we thought it was sort of funny, like, my daughter just asked me to chill and I don't know how. She was like, "What? what does that mean? she really didn't get that her daughter just wanted to sit near her and like have no agenda and just, you know, listen to music or poke around the room. Like it was very relaxed,
1: but that's how kids like to operate. Yeah. I saw that post and I, I felt for that, that daughter or son, I forget if it was a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. So not all conversations are initiated by parents. Sometimes, you know, kids will come to the table or, or bring something up. In the last year, this is um this is kind of COVID related, but in the last year I've had a lot of um friends who've talked about like the parent-child relationship um being strained. Um, specifically when a family has chosen a certain way to handle COVID. Okay. And you know as well as I do, the middle school is hard enough as it is like, during a regular time being a middle school kid. Um, and then you throw some social media into it and you see that their friends are on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever, and they're off going places with other people and taking selfies and all this stuff. And your family has decided not to do that. So is there a, some advice you could give to how to handle conversations other than saying, get over it, which is what like, the conversation crasher that I use that phrase quite often in my house, unfortunately, <laughs> um, is there ways that we could talk to them about that? Because their identity is through their friends. And so when that is handicapped, if you will, it makes it difficult. Yeah, I think that question comes up all the time right now. You're right. It's a really hard topic.
2: It causes parents to feel even more guilt than they're already feeling during a really hard time right now. But every family must make the safest decision for themselves. And the best thing we can be doing as parents is reinforcing that. With our friends and with our kids, and with our, you know, the, our all of our people, like you got to do what's right for you. I completely understand that. But what, but your kid doesn't appreciate this. That's just sort of a parent to parent thing I'd love to see happening. Um, I, I think you have to lead with just a ton of empathy here and say, I know it is so. Hard. Let's talk about what the hardest parts are for you. And then let's brainstorm what you can do within the bounds of our own safest choices here that will help you. And we're not going to come up with the perfect solution. We're not going to be able to have a sleepover with 20 kids, even though that feels like what we all want to do. I'm not going to get to go to Turks and Caicos, even though that's what I really want to do. So what can we reasonably do right now to, if we can't solve this completely, to alleviate some of the pain? right now. And your child will then have the responsibility with your help of coming up with some ideas. But The reason I like this approach is that so often kids this age feel helpless and then that can lead them to feeling hopeless. And that's where we don't want any kid to end up. So if you can give them the power to come up with some solutions, imperfect as they may be, you know, it may be, well, I want to have a get together on house party with a bunch of people and I want to make kits of snacks and drinks that we drop off at everyone's house. So we're all eating the same thing. And I want to do a nature scavenger hunt beforehand. And we share our pictures. I'm making stuff up on the fly, but you know what I mean? Right. They can come up with some ideas. You can empathize with them. You can reinforce it. And then you could say, you know what? You're great at solving problems. Like I'm so proud of you for coming up with a few things that could make you feel better here. Let's pick the one you like the best and let's do it.
1: The book 14 Talks by Age 14, you know, talks about there's different topics that you cover of the 14 talks to have before 14. And I have to say, personally, the friendship one, the friendship chapter was probably the hardest the one that spoke to me the most, um, considering middle school just kind of sucks for a lot of kids anyway. <laughs> and so, and then you wrap coronavirus in it and um, being socially distant and away from people. Um, it's, it's very challenging. And I understand that this age group is, everything's about their identity is wrapped around their friends and doing stuff with them. And so being around their 48-year-old mom and dad is, is not where they want to be. So that, that chapter was spoke to me a lot. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, the, the main takeaway that I hope
2: people get from that chapter is to normalize that friendships change at this age, n- no matter what, whether it's COVID or not. But the statistic I found when I was uh, writing that that fascinated me is that only 1% of friendships made in seventh grade will last into high school. And I just think that is so important for parents to normalize friendships breaking up because when it happened to me in middle school, I was like, oh, I guess I, I don't get to have friends. I'm not good at making friends or keeping them. And I carried that with me for a while. And I think a lot of kids do. So I just want Us as adults to normalize that that happens to everyone.
1: Yeah, I I found I saw that statistic and I was like, I was I'm one of the one percent. I'm special. I'm the unicorn (gasps) because you won the lottery. My best friend was from eighth grade, and this actually comes up in my house often. Is my daughter would be like, when am I going to find my person? Like you found him by eighth grade. I you know, and so because it happened to mom in eighth grade, she just assumes that that's how it is for everybody. And I was like, no, no. you know, she has her people.
0: The other side of that is that, you know, I have my person from elementary school. I have my person from college. I have my person, Tracy, from early career. There are different people for every chapter. And I think that's a really good message too, because your person for your 12-year-old self, that person is very different from your
1: 24-year-old self, you know, and 48-year-old self. So... And Michelle actually talks about that in the book. Um, Her son called it a mega, um, what it was a Lego reference.
2: When my son was little, he would always build these like
1: mega men,
2: like out of Legos and just like chunks of stuff to make this like ultimate warrior. And to me, it became a symbol for how kids want a mega friend, a perfect one person soulmate. But really, if you can take bits of pieces, like this is my friend who loves karate, and we go to karate together, and they're not everything to me. But then I have this friend over here, who likes to do creative writing. And so we have that connection. And just as you were saying, through the years, you build this you know, concentric circles of different people. You can also, if you don't have that one
1: person, you might have five
2: people who meet your needs differently.
1: Yeah. Trying to get a kid to under to cast a wide net. I've said cast a wide net to my kids so many times. Like you go, it doesn't, you don't have to just put all your eggs in one basket. I use that one a lot too. Me too. <laughs> I use that very well. <laughs> and, yeah. and they just look at me like, what? <laughs> but I have to just say it over and over again. And they're fight. We're fighting the media
2: on that because I write about this too. That every kind of you know YA movie or book shows us this person and their quirky sidekick best yeah. friend, and so we see that or read that over and over and over again, and think that's normal. I must not be when that's just not the case.
0: Yep. By the way, I think I'm the quirky sidekick <laughs> <laughs> in life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Michelle, we're running out of time, but. How do you think COVID will impact middle school kids' social-emotional development? You know, will the lack of face-to-face time hinder that development? What concerns you most about your favorite group of tweens and teens? I
2: get asked this all the time. As you can imagine, everyone's quite worried about what will the long-term effects be here. Um, and of course, we don't know. We have no way really of knowing. I tend to be an optimist. And so I feel like there is you know, certainly, let, let me step back and say, certainly for some families, this is a time of great crisis. And I don't want to paint with a broad brush and and say, everybody's going to come out of this beautifully um, because there are kids who are not safe in their homes. There are kids who are dealing with illness and loss and lots of stuff that is really horrific in general um, it, when that is not the case. My My hope and belief is that kids will be made stronger through this experience. I was a kid who was pretty isolated when I was this age. I was an only child. I told you that my friends broke up with me in middle school. And so I also had a a pretty isolating experience. And I think most of us can look back at that time and say, yeah, it was a really lonely stage of life for me. So I think that can teach people a lot, build a ton of resilience, show you how that feels and how you want to avoid that later in life, how you can make stronger connections. And I am also hearing about a lot of, you know, new hobbies, new interests. Um, really, creativity is spiking right now because, as we know, when you get really bored, you can have to get pretty creative to get through that. So uh, we don't know. I can't possibly predict, but my heart tells me that we will be
0: okay. Thank you so much, Michelle Ickard. Michelle's books, Middle School Makeover and Hot Off the Press, 14 Talks by Age 14 are available everywhere. Go get yourself a copy.
1: And if you haven't joined her Facebook group, Less Stressed Middle School Parents, uh, on Facebook, do so. I, I highly encourage that one as well. She pipes in on that, and it's a community of us. It's your peers, basically, parents um, going through the middle school years together. Uh, it's fantastic and a great has been a great resource for me. I've used it and looked Cause if you think it's only happening to you, it's you're wrong. Everyone is <laughs> some chances are somebody else is going through the same thing you are. So I found that very comforting. Thank you again, Michelle. Thanks for having me.
0: So apparently there are techniques we can use to make sure the lines of communication remain open with our surly tweens. So using Michelle's brief model, we can have successful interactions with our kids.
1: Brief, short and sweet. I like yeah. it. Hey Anne. You know, well, what? I know another way we can keep the conversation going in our podcast community. Well, Tracy, what could that be? The brief model. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping that everyone will share our podcast with their family and friends. Like us on iTunes. Leave us a review. Follow us at Apparently on Facebook. You can also email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnsos. Thanks for listening to Apparently. Apparently.